So, we're continuing to look at the marks of the church. What are the marks of the church? Three marks of the church. What are they? <clears throat> what is it? Uh, it should be a mark of the church, but like tradition, when we look at, uh, there's three marks of the church. Anyone remember what they are? Doctrine. Yep. Discipline. And the third mark is ordinances. Ordinances. How many ordinances do we have? What are they? Yep, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, why is that important to distinguish two that's in, in, in contrast to which group? How many ordinances does Catholicism recognize? Seven. What are they? Uh, that, that's the anointing of the sick. But kind of that morphed into the last rite, yeah. Marriage is one of them, I think. That's penance. Marriage, yeah. So penance, do we have six? I, I, I'm, I have, I, I've heard so many, I'm, I'm not counting. Let's say, oh, and catechism. No. Um, confirmation. confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. So w- those are some of the distinctions that we make, right? As, as uh, the Protestants, we make a distinction there. Now, we looked... Um, that at that last time, and I said, okay, what's the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics? Now, tonight, we're going to start to go and hone in a little bit more and say, okay, what are some of the differences in Protestant denominations? What are the differences when we, we're going to be on the ordinance of baptism? What are, what's the main difference that you will see in different denominations? Yeah. Pado versus credo. Okay, so... Confession versus infant pedo. Those are the two, two different positions. Baptism is probably one of the most debated practices in the church. And like I said, it separates denominations. And it even affects sometimes how you uh, may interpret the scriptures in certain parts. So the main issue over those two positions is to, to whom is the, are the recipients of baptism? Who are to be the recipients of it? And specifically, what is baptism? Now, I made this point that the, we're, we're obviously a Baptist church. So, I said the, the main doctrine of Baptist, does anyone remember what that main doctrine is that we hold to? And almost everything kind of flows out of that. Regenerate membership. Regenerate membership. That's the that's the primary doctrine. Is regenerate membership? What does regenerate membership mean? Yes. Break that down. What is a regenerate person? Yeah. Very good. So what is baptism? Let me read you a couple of... First, I'll read you our statement of faith. This is our statement of faith on it. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water 
in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is the prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. Now, you might wonder, is that specifically just a Baptist doctrine and what Baptists believe? A lot of it, yeah. But let me read a couple of different views. John Calvin says this, Baptism is the initiatory sign by which we are admitted to the fellowship of the church, that being engrafted into Christ, we may be accounted children of God. There's no disagreement with our statement of faith from what Calvin says there. Baptism is the thing that initiates us into the church. It is a symbol of us being engrafted into Christ and being considered children of God. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a Dutch Reformed catechism, says this in question 69. How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ won sacrifice on the crosses for you personally? Answer, in this way. Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. In other words, all my sins. Question number 70. By the way, these questions, the Heidelberg Catechism is to be taught to children. That's why it was written. Question 70. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I may become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. And to Calvin, to the Heidelberg Catechism, which we have differing views, I would say amen and amen. The Baptist Catechism, Baptist Catechism came shortly after the 1689 Confession, says what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, instituted by Jesus Christ, to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him. In his death, burial, and resurrection of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and in of his giving up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Question 98. To whom is baptism to be administered? So, so far, we've had agreement in all of these. Then you get to question 98. Baptism is to be administered to all those who actually profess repentance toward God, faith, in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to none other. And so that's where we have the, the difference. In Baptist view, uh, it is a believer's baptism, and when you see in Presbyterian or Reformed circles, and some Anglican circles, you will see that it is a different view. So, Let's do a survey now. We saw a lot of things that were the same across those denominational lines, right? It's initiatory. It's something that initiates us into the church. It's the prerequisite to taking of the Lord's Supper. 
denominations all in agreement there. So, what we're going to do is just study the doctrine of baptism from the scriptures itself. And so, where do we first see baptism in the Bible? John the Baptist. So, let's go over to Mark chapter 1. In verse 4. Mark 1, verse 4. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We go on to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The baptism of John is unique. And it's debated on what was exactly going on, why he started baptizing. And if you read 10 different commentaries on it, you'll have 10 different opinions. But just looking at the text, a couple of things that teaches us, what type of baptism was John's? Repentance and forgiveness of sins, right? So that was the purpose of it, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, John the Baptist was like what figure of the Old Testament? He was like Elijah. In fact, I'll just read it real quick. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, it says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. There's this Elijah-like figure. Elijah is calling the people to repentance, and John the Baptist was calling the people to repentance. So what was specifically he was doing was preparing the way for the Lord. And you see that in in verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So it's almost as if John the Baptist was a herald before Christ, saying the king is coming. And he is calling the people to repentance. I love John the Baptist because he did not mince words. Who told you to flee the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? That's the type of language John the Baptist used. So you can see why people would be coming out to this fiery preacher that was there. 
Now, it's interesting, where was his baptism taking place? What location? Okay, in the Jordan River. Think about the significance of the Jordan River. What was the significance of the Jordan River in the history of Israel? They crossed it. On dry ground? Yeah, and they, they crossed it on dry ground, and, and, but there's something else about it. That was their inheritance of the land. Right? And it was after their what? Exodus. Christ brings in a new what? Exodus. His baptism was in the Jordan River, symbolizing a return from exile. They were not in a, an actual physical exile at this point. You will remember they had come back to Israel. They were under Roman occupation, but they were still allowed to be in the land. But what was it that Jesus found when he came to his own? His own did not what? They were in a spiritual exile. A couple of passages that are, that are helpful. In Isaiah, in chapter 40, we read this in verses 3 through 5. And this is what we've already seen, is a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." In Isaiah 44, in verse 22, you see this idea of this return after a forgiveness. A return and Israel being redeemed. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. So this is a picture when we get to John the Baptist of a, a, a symbolizing a return from exile through his baptism. It was a return from exile when sins are forgiven. What was the type of baptism that he did? What, 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 how did he administer it? It was immersion. Notice that when Jesus is baptized, what does it say? Verse 10. Of Mark. He came up out of the water. So John is giving a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. He's an Elijah like figure. It's symbolizing this return, this second exodus. He's preparing the way for it. Um, immersion was the symbolism of that cleansing. But there's something about John's baptism that we should note, and it's, insufficient, it's that it's insufficient. Look at verse 8. What does verse 8 teach us? It's lacking, right? He says, I, I have baptized you with water. I just did this with water. But he, and who's the He. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So only Jesus pouring out the Spirit could bring about a new creation and the kingdom be truly realized in Christ. So John the Baptist does the unthinkable, and that is he baptizes Jesus. Now, if you look over in Matthew at the parallel accounts, Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it gives us more detail of the same account. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. He doesn't want to do it. Jesus persuades him that all righteousness would be fulfilled. This is a a, a tricky thing. What exactly does that mean? Is that so it's an example for us later? I think that that's certainly true. But what does that mean that Jesus himself had to be baptized? Because John's baptism was a baptism of what? Yet, and Jesus did not have sins that needed to be repented of or forgiven. But yet he says, I still need to do this. Well, when you look at verse 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A lot of commentators point us to Isaiah in 42. Isaiah 42 verse 1, where we read these words. This is, Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so you see that there's this, the, the giving of the spirit upon Jesus to empower him for his ministry. And then the father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so you see the connection there to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah... We think of the suffering servant. Where's, I, where's the suffering servant in Isaiah? Isaiah 53. But there's four servant songs. There's suffering servant songs in Isaiah. We're just most familiar with Isaiah 53. And rightly so, because it's such a beautiful passage depicting the prophecy of Christ that he was crushed for their iniquities. But there's four times where you see these very clear statements. And Isaiah 42 is one in those lines. And so, one commentator writes this, Jesus is God's beloved Son. He is the true Israel who always obeyed the Lord. Jesus was not baptized so that his sins would be cleansed, He was baptized by John to prefigure and anticipate his death as the servant of the Lord 
by which he would atone for the sins of his people and inaugurate the new creation. That was by Tom Schreiner. So in other words, this was to inaugurate something. Christ, in obedience to the Father, goes to be baptized by John. And yes, it is an example for us as well. So when we see baptism, we see it first with John. And then where's the next place that you really see baptism in the Gospels? After John. Yeah. Oh, I didn't think of that. I think that's a good correlation. Yeah, that he is the perfect one. Uh, is that what you're... It, what, yeah. yeah. It, they had, it, had to be a, it had to be an unblemished... Yes. It had to pass a certain standard to be a sacrificial lamb. Yeah, I think that's a great correlation because when he says, with whom I'm well pleased, that he was, the, he, he was his elect son. Yeah, thank you. That's a good thought. So where is, where do we see baptism next in the Gospels? See John the Baptist? And then is it, is this, is it silent? Okay, you see the disciples start to baptize? And say that he's gaining, Jesus' disciples are gaining more disciples. Yep. Then where else do we see it? We start to get actually instruction in it. Okay, so two weeks ago I asked, where would you say, if you, had, if you were asked, okay, you believe baptism is an ordinance of the church, I gave you the question, where would you defend that from Scripture? And every, almost everyone gave me the right answer. The Great Commission. The Great Commission. Yeah, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. I'll tell you a funny story. We were in seminary, and we were in a Baptist history class, and someone, the professor, asked us to recite the passage, and the class utterly failed at that. And he's like, you guys do not deserve to be in a Baptist seminary. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we, we have to know this one. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, this right here gives us our first instructions in the Gospels on what baptism is. So you see the, the command, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The command is, uh, what's the specific command in this passage? Does anyone remember? To make disciples is the specific command. That's the imperative. So imperative just means it's a command. So the specific command is to make disciples, and then who's baptized? The disciples are baptized, right? So, baptism is given to disciples. 
And so I would say as a Baptist, that's, that's where I'm going to hang my, my hat on that. But there's other things that we see here as well, is that there's a formula in which we baptize. What is that formula? A Trinitarian formula. Is it an essential part of the gospel proclamation, a simple statement on the triune God? Absolutely. Absolutely, right? That doesn't mean we we understand the nuances of Trinitarian theology or that we could we could write books on it like Augustine or something like that. It just simply means that it's actually part of the message. Because we are to baptize into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's a Trinitarian formula. The other thing is that you see about this is it's just like what we read of Calvin, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Baptist uh, Catechism, it's initiatory. There's, there's salvation first, and then there is this baptism, and then it's teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so it's this initiation that takes place there. Sometimes I think... People get this confused, and they get a wrong focus. We see, make disciples, that is, that people come to know Christ, and then it's of all nations, meaning every tribe, every tongue. We're to not discriminate in the gospel proclamation, in other words. Everyone is to hear the gospel. You baptize them, but then you're supposed to also teach. Who are you teaching? The disciples. The disciples. It's not that we're teaching the nations. We're teaching the disciples of all nations. That's the focus of the church. What does the unregenerate world care about the teachings of Christ? They reject the teachings of Christ. We are to disciple and to teach Christians, disciples, everything that Christ said. Now, one of the passages that that is sometimes used, Matthew 18, I I preached on this from Mark, and uh, I I found this in almost, most of of the commentaries and systematic theologies I have are not actually Baptist. So I spend a lot of time in more of Presbyterian and and Dutch Reformed theologies. And almost all of them interpreted this as a baptism passage for for infants. I'm sorry, where was it? Matthew Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the parallel passage in Luke actually uses the word infants. It's the same passage, just parallel in Luke. But there's a couple of things here mentioned that are helpful for us to sort through this. Where do you see instruction on baptism? Yeah, you don't see it in Matthew 18. 
says the kingdom belongs to such, but that's different than saying that these belong in the are in the kingdom. There's a difference between those two things, and it is true. If you were if you were here when I preached on on children being in church, one of the points that I I, I made during that sermon was the meaning behind that is this is it's that we are to have a childlike dependence upon Christ in salvation. That's what it means. So when we come to Christ, it's the same thing as an infant. What can an infant do to support themselves? Nothing. And that's that's how we are to view Christ, that we are completely desperate, we are broken down by our sin, we cannot work ourselves out of this this bog that we're in, it is only in Christ and Christ alone. So we're fully dependent upon Christ. And that's the gospel, right? Our God, the gospel is the good news that Christ saves us. We're unable to save ourselves. You have to be like a child. And so the kingdom is for those that are dependent upon Jesus. And that's, that's really the point of this. And our, our own children, we invite to Jesus, right? We don't withhold from them Jesus. Now, the next place we see in scriptures where we start to see just a ton of baptisms is where? The book of Acts. One thing about Acts is Acts is what type of book? What's the genre of writing of Acts? It's, yeah, it's history. It's historical narrative. Is historical narrative prescriptive or descriptive? Yeah, it can be prescriptive, right? And we can, can we gain principles from descriptive? Yeah, but it's primarily it's something that's describing what took place in history rather than necessarily prescribing something. So, for instance, when we look to the day of Pentecost... We know that that was a one-time event that took place. That's not going to happen again. We're not expecting a second Pentecost. And so it's describing what happened. It's not describing something that's normative. So that's one of the things that we have to recognize because there's some instances of baptism where we would say, well, that's not actually a normative practice. Can you think of one of the examples of that's not a normative practice of baptism in, in the book of Acts? Egyptian, yeah. What what makes that unique? Can someone tell me what makes the Egyptian eunuch unique in baptism? Was he part of a church? No. It wasn't like Philip like went to him. <laughs> yep. It was a total very working of the. It was a very supernatural event was not part of a church, didn't come into a church. He, he goes back to his own land on his own and probably takes the gospel there. So it's a very unique situation where we would say, yeah, that's not normative for the practice of the church today. We see other examples where there is some normalcy. But you'll notice in Acts chapter 2, let's just survey this really quick. You start in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. 
This is after Peter's Pentecost sermon. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word... So those who received his word were what? Yeah. There was a reception of the gospel, and it follows, what follows it is then baptism. I have a question. Mm-hmm. So this was before, like, say, a local church was established, correct? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we would say within the local church, you would need to be baptized in your local church when you become a believer. Yeah. But this was not that. Yet. This was the, the the so there was always believers, right? Uh-huh. But this is the the day of Pentecost is a, is is really the birth of the church in in the sense that it is coming now under Christ. So did they just like I guess we're I'm missing the picture of did they take all that? thousand of these down to the river and baptize them right there or how did they just, the text doesn't tell us. Uh, so, okay. Chalk it up to one of your questions. You're <laughs> that day, they baptized 3,000 souls. You know, it's not easy baptizing someone. You have to have the person being baptized to bend their knees. I'm being serious. And so when, when you bring them up, you, you're doing that work. So, I mean, this is an incredible thing. And you have all of these disciples there that are 120 in the upper room. I don't know what the math is on that and how it broke apart, but they, they baptized 3,000 people that day. It's an incredible thing. Acts 12, or 8, in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, As he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women, even Simon himself, believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. So again, it's that same thing of belief. They listen to the word, they receive the gospel, then they're baptized. In verse 36, the Ethiopian eunuch and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Say, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38 says that they go down into the water, and he baptized him. Chapter 9, in verse 18. And immediately, this is Saul being baptized, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food and was strengthened. You go over to chapter 10 and verse 47. This is a very interesting situation with Peter. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Chapter 16, in verse 15. 
And after she was baptized in her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 30 of the same chapter. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's some commonalities that you see across all of these accounts. And what are those commonalities? They believed first and they were baptized. Every time there's an expression of belief at the hearing of the gospel, and then there's an immediacy to it as well. As soon as they confessed, there was was an immediate response. And so we see baptism is then tied to salvation. It's tied to salvation. You think about what Paul told the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What does it mean by you and your household? I understand by that being believed, but I mean household could be any number of people or any number of ages. So yeah. what does that mean? That's, that's good. So sometimes these are, those are used to support that. There's a couple of things you have to notice in the text. So go back to chapter 10. I was going to ask that because that's the account about Cornelius, right? Yeah. So if you look at, look at, it says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So they're baptized because they've received the Holy Spirit. When Peter tells of this later on in chapter 11, he's reporting to the church says, He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. There's a message proclaimed that is received. Peter's explanation, verse 18, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance to uh, lead to life. And so it is those that have repented. It is those that have believed. Um, you look at the, the example in Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer. It describes everyone in the household rejoicing. And it's not just like a, a, a smile or something. It is a rejoicing that takes place because they had heard the message and resulted. So you can't read uh, into this something that's not there. It's those that can receive the message. They respond to it in each description of it. It shows that there is a response. There's some cognitive understanding. Salvation 
is based upon belief. You see that in all of those different accounts, that they heard the message of the gospel, believed the content of it, had a rejoicing that takes place as a result of that. So, this takes us through the gospel, starting with John the Baptist, seeing his baptism was different, looking at Jesus' description of it. Then when we go through and see the descriptions of it in the book of Acts, what we then do is we see another pattern, all these patterns starting to emerge. There's one thing interesting about Acts, and I'll close with this, is there's not a Trinitarian formula. Did you notice that missing? It's baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only explanation that I can understand for that is this, is that because they were coming out of Judaism, it was already assumed, certain things were already assumed, and so it's no, you are coming into Christ now. You are coming into Christ, and you're making an identification with Christ himself. So it's not that, most commentators do not see it as that they ignored a Trinitarian formula, but rather they're emphasizing the point of your being baptized into Christ's name. Next week we'll look at the epistles. Continuing on this subject, we'll look at the epistles and see if we can continue to draw some themes out from Scripture on baptism. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are brought into union with him. We are thankful for our baptism that shows us and symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection with the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the comfort we have knowing that our sins have been cleansed by his blood and his blood alone. We know that baptism doesn't save us. Christ and Christ alone saves us but yet you commanded your church to practice this ordinance. So we pray we would filter all things through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.